Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. Welcome to this episode of the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. This is Carla, and I'm so excited to introduce you to our special guest today, Dr. Keith Block. Dr. Block has long been regarded as the father of integrative oncology. He combines cutting-edge conventional treatments with personalized and scientifically-based innovative complementary and nutraceutical therapies. In 1980, he co-founded the Block Center for Integrative Cancer Treatment in Skokie, Illinois, the first such facility in North America. Their model of care continues to set the standard for the practice of a comprehensive individualized approach to cancer treatment in the United States. In addition to his clinical practice, Dr. Block is the founding editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed journal, Integrative Cancer Therapies. He is also the scientific director of the Institute of Integrative Cancer Research and Education. Dr. Block has more than 150 publications in scientific journals and books relevant to nutritional and integrative oncology. He is also the author of Life Over Cancer, published in April 2009. Welcome, Dr. Block. I'm thrilled to have this time with you today um, for this new podcast, and I want to thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule. So I really appreciate your time today. But you are more than welcome, Carla. Thanks. As your patient for the past seven years, I know the Block Center well, and I have utilized your integrative approach to the fullest. I came to you 18 months into my stage four metastatic breast cancer journey when I had a new liver tumor, and that was in 2016. So your partnership and your approach helped me to resolve that liver tumor fully within six months, and I've been NED, no evidence of disease, ever since. And I feel very blessed to have you right here in my own backyard. You're, you're close, and I appreciate your partnership so much, and I know that it's made a huge for my healing journey. So that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to share you with our listeners. So let's start with you briefly describing your model of care so that the listeners who aren't familiar with you know what that looks like. Well, thanks for the lovely introduction, Carla. Um, I think before I uh, go into the model, let me, you know, at least explain um, how I got started and a bit of the background uh, information. Uh, by the age of 16, I had lost four relatives to cancer. Um, and it was likely my grandmother, the last of the four, who recurred with uh, metastatic breast cancer some 25 years after going into remission that had the most profound impact on me. 
And, uh, you know, I, my parents took me to the hospital with them, uh, Mount Sinai, uh, on Miami beach. And I visited her in the hospital and this very, very vital, robust, engaged woman had become fragile. She was faded. She was sad. Uh, she was enervated. Um, and she was clearly debilitated and deconditioned. No one was addressing her physically. She was depleted nutritionally. No one uh, was looking at anything that she was eating or taking. And she was despondent and in despair, uh, maybe understandably, um, because of the communications that took place. But no one provided any emotional support of any kind. Intuitively, I just knew something was missing uh, with it. And, you know, ultimately, she would lose her life from uh, what I believed in at the time was, you know, the cancer, you know, right. And um, I, I would learn uh, that, in fact, she was suffering from uh, what we would call cancer cachexia today. And uh, actually, you know, it's rather common. It's preventable. Um, it's a life-threatening complication um, associated with cancer and its treatments. And there's actually plenty that can be done, you know, to to counter it. And so it was uh, with uh, a lot of um, frustration and sadness, um, you know, to historically through my own life, look backwards and realize that, you know, some of the care was just uh, lacking, mostly because of knowledge at the time uh, than anything else. I guess so to answer your question, let me let me read what I would describe our our model, you know, of cancer uh, care to kind of be. Uh, it's a systematic, comprehensive, multifaceted, and multi-interventional whole system model um, with treatment strategies individualized to each patient, as you know, based on objective assessments and designed to reduce treatment toxicity, increase treatment tolerance, boost treatment efficacy, and reduce treatment resistance. And, you know, at the end of the day, of course, enhance survival. And it's all provided with a life-affirming and open communication between patient and practitioner, um, with a goal of leaving really no stone unturned, regardless of the degree of disease that a patient may be facing. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And for sure, I feel like in my, you know, uh, journey with you at the Block Center, the drugs that I'm on to prevent hormones from feeding cancer have had no side effects for me. Um, or they're so similar to menopause that I can't tell the difference. So therefore, no side effects. But I've talked to other women utilizing the same drugs I'm taking and having horrible side effects. And I believe it's the support that I'm getting, the lifestyle change and the, the nutritional support that I'm getting and everything else that's really helping me to overcome those, those side effects. So thank you. Well, you know... It's interesting that you say that because, you know, if you talk about the three components of our model uh, biography, how you eat, live and take care of yourself, um, your history and kind of what's the story you hope to tell, mm -hmm. uh, your biology, 
really the extracellular environment and um, something that was really ignored, uh, even though you can date back thousands of years and find writing about seed and soil. Um, in this regard, I would talk about cell and the ecological environment surrounding that cell uh, and the importance of getting it so it's inhospitable to cancer uh, and not, uh, you know, in an environment that really supports malignant growth. And then, you know, really the third area is the pathology, the disease itself, and what we, you know, kind of all recognize as, you know, quote unquote, the cancer and, you know, what are we going to do about it? But I, I have to tell you that that area has been so predominant that it overwhelmed the idea that a patient's biography and lifestyle and nutrition and sleep and fitness are all fundamental to not only how those treatments are tolerated, but how well they work. And the same goes for that uh, extracellular soup or what I called back in the 70s as a medical student, the terrain mm -hmm. and uh, that environment, testing it to get it right, uh, you know, is something that's, you know, really phenomenal and important in this regard. Um, you know, just to talk a little bit about how do you establish a biological, you know, biographical integrity? Uh, how do you really uh, achieve optimal wellness, uh, you know, in, you know, kind of all facets of, of care? Um, just an example, in 2005, uh, right here in Chicago uh, at McCormick Place, uh, a very famous researcher named Klebowski presented to over 5,000 uh, physicians at the American Society for Clinical Oncology, the annual meeting. And he presented um, uh, over 2,400 breast cancer patients, all postmenopausal, in a study where they uh, gave the treatment group a less than 20% fat diet, which is in uh, is consonant with what our recommendations have been since, you know, the uh, 1980s. Um, and the data demonstrated a 24% reduction in breast cancer recurrence, just from that change wow. in dietary intake and particularly uh, fat percentage. That's comparable to tamoxifen, our aromatase inhibitors, a whole variety of different cancer drugs that we use for breast cancer. And yet, I don't know about you, but I don't believe for a minute that very many physicians actually talk to patients about diet when they're addressing them with regards to metastatic breast cancer or even early stage breast cancer. Uh, and Sadly, I think it's not. somewhat a shame. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, really... it is a shame. And, you know, from my, my first 2003 diagnosis, when I had stage 3B and went through the mastectomy, chemo and radiations, well before I knew about you or the radical remission project. Um, yeah, you know, they I was done with treatment. In months, they sent me off with five years of tamoxifen and never told me to do anything differently. 
And I often wonder if I had changed my lifestyle, would I have gotten this metastatic diagnosis? And then when I did get that, that same oncologist told me to go eat a brownie or drink a margarita. And I thought, hmm, that, that doesn't sit with me. I know better. And so um, that was a big reason why I, I chose to switch my care over to the Block Center. But you mentioned the terrain panel. So I'm familiar with that terrain testing and love that you guys do that because there's data that tells me that what I'm doing, what I'm eating, you know, is, is helping or it's not. So could you please explain the terrain panel and those six components? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, in some regards, you can talk spring or swamp, <laughs> you know, are <laughs> you, you know, do, do you have an environment that is really therapeutic and healing? Or do you have an environment that is really, uh, you know, mucky, murky, and, you know, potentially problematic? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you can test that environment uh, through a patient's blood and other factors, but uh, the blood being the easiest. Um, and you can make a pretty good assessment as is this patient uh, living with an environment that is cancer inhibiting, cancer fighting, uh, combative to malignant cells, or is it cancer promoting? Is it actually an environment that's supporting those cells? That environment, we developed laboratory testing around, um, created a whole terminology. It took uh, two full decades of work, uh, both in Israel and here in Chicago, uh, with um, a uh, small research team. Um, some of these terms you know, inflammation, uh, we know uh, drives malignancy. Uh, um, hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia can drive uh, malignancy, uh, coagulopathy, uh, oxidation, stress chemistry, and of course, immune dysregulation. And um, uh, since my uh, book, Life Over Cancer, came out, um, we have added a seventh factor, uh, which deals with uh, pH and acidity. Um, and we know that the environment, if it's acid-based, uh, um, is also uh, creating an environment that is supportive for malignant growth. And so that uh, is also a factor that needs to be addressed. And each of these areas can be um, fixed, if you will. They can be tested. Um, we follow them with patients routinely over time, um, doing updated lab tests, depending on the severity of the patient's situation, uh, determines how frequently we'll test them. And then we make all kinds of adjustments, usually understanding that there is a foundation of optimal diet and fitness, sleep and stress care, um, biobehavioral care, that we get this foundation so it's optimized, then we don't have to do a lot of tweaking. Um, but if the foundation isn't, or if a patient is, is uh, has a more advanced disease or is on you know stronger drugs, um, then we'll, you know, move into not only natural products and supplements to correct the environment and to prevent it from going south, um, but also we'll uh, use, if necessary, off-label drugs to fix the environment as well. Um, 
you know, I got started on this because of um, I, I was carrying petri dishes between labs and um, uh, at the University of Miami School of Medicine, and I was getting chewed out by a grad student because I was getting the cells from one lab to another, and these are cancer cells in the petri dish. To him, in his opinion, too slow. Mm-hmm. And they were dead by the time I got them there. And uh, as I mentioned, I had lost a number of relatives to cancer. This would trouble me terribly for several years. And I would eventually start to do this work to try to understand what is this extracellular, extratumoral environment and is it modifiable? And in time, we would be able to demonstrate and prove that it's very modifiable and it's very core and critical to actually what happens to the cancer cells and the patient and the ability to respond to treatment or not, uh, tolerate treatment or not, uh, and uh, avoid recurrences or not. And so um, that became a, a very you know, big uh, deal. Uh, I, for a long time, used the phrase, it's not just about the cell, but the soup within the cell. Uh, you can talk, talk about your intracellular environment or a cell within the soup, uh, you know, your extracellular environment as well. Um, and this is, you know, significant, you know, in the fact that we uh, don't, you know, really uh, pay much attention to it at all in the conventional uh, kind of model. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard of a patient coming in the door and saying my uh, mainstream doctor mentioned uh, my terrain or microenvironment was really uh you know, something he wanted to follow and watch and uh, try to improve. So, that, you know, it's a, it's an interesting kind of, uh, you know, arena, you know, that we do in, uh, in addressing these things. And, um, you know, it's also targeting, you know, only the tumor generally isn't enough to overcome a malignancy. And we kind of know that, at least for anything beyond a stage two cancer, um, the difficulty of really overcoming these illnesses. And in situations like your own, conventional cancer therapies almost always will leave behind some, you know, possibilities of, you know, small number of malignant cells, and that's all it takes to come back and haunt you later. So to be out seven years and still free of disease without recurrence speaks very loudly to me that somebody did a lot of work in keeping your terrain optimized, um, you in this case. And it requires, you know, a, a real commitment on a patient's part to get well and stay well and, you know, really to manage, um, you know, these factors that are very, um, you know, objective. Uh, they're, they're laboratory tests with real numbers and um, you know, uh, we've trained, you know, many uh, physicians and clinics and our own staff uh, terrifically on being able to watch these numbers and be sure that they get fixed. Uh, it's why patients have to do everything possible to keep those cells, whether it's one uh, thousand or a million uh, um, from pro- proliferating and spreading. Uh, with it, and and there really is a ton of research, believe it or not, to, to to back this up. It's not that you know I created this out of whole cloth. I will tell you, back in the '70s and '80s when we were you know kind of strategizing, there wasn't that much data. But today, you know, you can't uh, go through you know medical journals without seeing considerable evidence of this. And it's not just that the factors are relevant; they influence the biology of the disease, the mortality or immortality of a cell, 
the angiogenesis, the vascular supply to a tumor or not, uh, resistance or sensitivity to treatment, you know, and um, what we often refer to as differentiation or proliferation, a differentiation being a cell going from a abnormal state and returning it back to a normal, healthy state. Um, and uh, also, you know, are you uh, producing and replicating and you know, uh, um, you know, developing a lot more cells, uh, proliferating, um, and have you got an environment that is actually working against that and against the metastases that that can drive? And then all the cancer challenges that you know every patient faces are really a result of that as well. Uh, not just quality of life, but treatment efficacy, treatment tolerance, um, life-threatening complications. Uh, are highly associated with that. If you have a uh, blood clot, uh, you know, because of uh, sticky platelets that are too aggregated and too um, activated, uh, those platelets uh, can lead to a life-threatening emboli, uh, you know, embolism or an emboli uh, in your lungs. And, um, you know, it can lead to uh, one's mortality. And recurrences are highly associated with this as well because, um, we know that these particular types of cells um, have the ability to uh, breach the vasculature, um, entering the lymph or blood vessels, the rivers of the body, and they then can migrate through the system um, and dock in a new lo location. And they depend on platelets, actually, as not just the ability to drill into the rivers of the body, but also as shields to one's immune system. And if you deactivate and deaggregate platelets, if you provide a patient both with the right diet and the right uh, natural products, you can prevent those platelets from being able to do that, leaving the cancer cells exposed. So as they try to migrate through the system or even enter the rivers in the first place, um, they're not as easily able to do that. So you can get it kind of ahead of the, the game. Yeah. And yeah. so we, we know certain things. We know type of cancer can uh, impact uh, uh, the terrain um, and what factors might be, you know, particularly relevant. We know like glycemia and hyperinsulinemia are highly associated with cancers like breast cancer uh, and ovarian cancer. We know colon and pancreatic cancers and brain cancers are highly inflammatory cancers. Um, we know that, um, you know, uh, the environment affects uh, side effects uh, without any question. Uh, oxidative stress can cause uh, a drug like oxaliplatin or many other drugs to cause neuropathy, uh, neuron damage, uh, and uh, uh, you get numbness and tingling in your fingers and toes, and that can be kind of a, a mean you know, set of symptoms. Um, and we know that there's, you know, many things, uh, you know, maybe we'll have some time to talk about it, um, that can fix those side effects, uh, reverse them, but also, you know, in, in the first place, prevent uh, getting into trouble with them. And there's research to, to, you know, as long as I mentioned breast cancer, you know, we, we know data that um, if you, there's over 500 patients that were studied that if you were in the top quartile, the top 25% of insulin levels, and same as uh, 
consistent with glycemia levels, glucose levels, mm -hmm. that you have uh, twice the likelihood for recurrence and metastasis. Wow. And in that same population, in that top quartile, you also have three times tripling of the mortality. So it's very significant that high levels of fasting insulin really identify, you know, uh, patients with uh, likely poorer outcomes. And similarly, um, younger patients actually have a worse prognosis, as much as a fivefold worse prognosis if they have the highest insulin levels. And not surprisingly, right, uh, our younger populations eat worse, sleep worse, um, have, you know, poor generally capacity to manage stresses. Mm -hmm. So their ability to contain and control glycemia and hyperinsulinemia isn't as good. So they're at greater risk uh, for these kinds of problems in the first place. So it's not a surprise that uh, five that they, they would have a, actually a, a five-fold worse prognosis uh, associated with insulin levels being too high. Uh, with Astounding. Itself. So yeah. it, it just begs to everybody should have a healthy lifestyle, right? To, to do more to... Okay. It is true. I mean, for, you know, you can talk about this as, you know, kind of a disease care, but you can easily talk about it as prevention. I mean, we we do what is called secondary prevention all the time, and that's helping patients prevent recurrence, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of where you've been for, you know, many years. Right. But it's equally true to prevent uh, getting the diseases in the first place. And we have a um, an epidemic of young people with breast cancer, colon cancer. I mean, when I started practicing back in the, you know, 1980, um, it would be rare for me to see somebody under the age of 40 with either uh, a breast cancer or colon cancer, let alone a metastatic, uh, you know, a highly advanced uh, breast or colon cancer. Today, it's routine for me to see 20-year-olds with both. Uh, you know, with it. And I uh, attribute it to lifestyle factors. Um, we know that if you just stick with the insulin, uh, you know, and insulin growth factor and uh, glycemia and stuff, over being overweight, eating overly large meals, getting poor sleep, emotional stress, all of these factors are kind of um, major, uh, not getting adequate fitness. Uh, at least uh, 30, 40 minutes a day of some form of mild aerobics, um, dietary care for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a whole bunch of natural products and stuff, even before one has to dive into, um, you know, the the drug end of trying to manage glycemia and insulinemia. Um, there's cinnamon, you know, that you would use with oatmeal in the morning, right? Uh, right. right. Sugar. There's chromium, there's holy basil and vitamin D and bitter melon and coffee berry. I mean, and gymnema sylvestre. I mean, there's an enormous number of herbs and nutrients and stuff that can actually help, uh, you know, maintain more optimal levels. That's great to know. And, you know, people, I mean, I think I always tell people in my coaching that, you know, foundationally, the, the nutrition, the the diet needs to be there, right? Before you start taking a bunch of supplements and additional things. But it sounds like they can they can start to get things under control by 
starting to eat better and adding in some natural herbs. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. For yeah. sure. Well, I've been a good student for the last seven years. So <laughs> you have. <laughs> yes. If you would like to learn more about the healing factors, join a Radical Remission workshop to learn how to implement them into your life. You will learn how lifestyle choices such as diet change, increasing positive emotions, empowerment, and more can boost your immune system in scientifically proven ways. Our workshops follow a unique interactive format that encourages sharing and social support. You will create a self-designed, one-week, one-month, and six-month action plan that you can begin to implement right away. For many, a Radical Remission workshop is the first step in finding a like-minded, uplifting, healing community. The 10 factors of Radical Remission can be used safely by anyone on any healing journey, as well as for prevention. These 10 factors will aid you in improving your immune function and have helped many people overcome cancer or other chronic diseases. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find virtual and in-person workshops and other events. Looking for a thoughtful, heartfelt gift for someone with cancer? The Radical Remission Project has partnered with woman-led small business Rest and Heal to create lovely care packages for you to send. They feature the Radical Remission and Radical Hope books alongside natural wellness products all of which are non-toxic and sourced from women-owned, Black-owned, and New York State businesses. We know our community is passionate about spreading the Radical Remission healing factors, and these care packages are a great way to get knowledge into the hands of those who need it most. Visit restandheal.com forward slash shop to purchase or learn more. That's restandheal.com forward slash shop. So, and I know I'm not your only success story. I know there are many others. Is there any other uh, success story that comes to mind? Just one or two of them around how you, you know, they had a disrupted terrain and, and you were able to help them sort of fix that and overcome? Um. Yeah, I mean, I have a, a few really kind of fascinating uh, stories. Uh, uh, I'll share a, a patient with you that I think is really kind of a uh, an amazing medical story. Um, she uh, came to me with metastatic ovarian cancer. Um, uh, she was initially diagnosed um, and uh, had already uh, with an advanced stage four uh, disease. Um, at the time that I initially saw her, she had uh, ascites, which is uh, a belly full of uh, fluid uh, with cancer cells. Uh, and basically what ends up happening, these cancer cells weep and they create a fluid. Uh, and she, um, you know, was swollen uh, um, in a, you know, fairly compromising way. Um, we put her on a very full health regimen. Uh, we got her diet and her fitness and her stress care and her sleep and uh, biobehavioral uh, intervention um, really intact. And, and, and she was uh, uh, a very well-known uh, 
uh, rock climber uh, in uh, Colorado. And uh, she came to me laboratory-wise. Uh, she showed uh, marked inflammatory uh, um, uh, markers as well as uh, considerable fatigue, which goes along with a hyper-inflammatory condition uh, with it. Um, we started her and uh, with full training and each component of the program. Um, we did terrain labs on her and analyzed. I'll talk about them in a second. Uh, I gave her several natural products um, as well as some drugs to counter the ab abdominal swelling, this uh, ascites fluid, which is generally associated with a very poor prognosis. Um, she had neuropathy from some of her early treatments. I countered that with uh, a couple of natural products, uh, um, thioctic acid being one, acetyl L-carnitine being another, but also with some uh, other uh, physical care uh, interventions. Um, she was flatlined uh, with uh, cortisol. Uh, her adrenal glands, um, you know, were in the pits. Uh, I'm sure because of the stress of the diagnosis, um, I ended up giving her both ginseng and a uh, an herbal formula um, that uh, addresses uh, recovery of uh, adrenal fu functioning, and I uh, addressed her with uh, things like uh, uh, a. Uh, micronized uh, nanified curcumin fish oil, um, a green tea uh, uh, formulation, and a few others uh, to go after the inflammation itself, along with uh, really switching her um, type of fats uh, that she was eating in terms of quality. When she first came in the door, we uh, tested her uh, terrain and her lipid peroxides, a marker for oxidative stress, were quite elevated. Um, uh, within a year, we had them within normal range, and they would stay in normal range for the next three years. And then she took off with a girlfriend to go gallivanting around the uh, world for a year. Oh, my gosh, that sounds and amazing. Admittedly, when she came back, she came right through uh, Chicago and uh, wanted her bloods drawn. And sure enough, because of being off track, not terribly, but enough, uh, her lipid peroxides jump right back up. Mm -hmm. um, her C-reactive protein, a marker for inflammation, was off the charts when she first came to us. Um, we got them so they were almost imperceptible within a few years um, and for several years. And then when she went off on her trip and came back, that number had jumped up um, out of normal range as well, um, a marker, obviously, of inflammation. And her fibrinogen levels also, we started off very high. It took actually a couple of years to get her fibrinogen levels all the way into normal range, but it only took a year of, uh, you know, not the most optimal care of sleep and food, and uh, her markers jumped back up. Needless to say, she got back on track, and within a quarter of a year, all of her numbers were normalized uh, with it. Um, I've got photos of her rock climbing um, with a uh, signed note that says, thanks for keeping me climbing. Um, she has a sad um, uh, story that happened many years later, uh, unfortunately. Um, the, the fascinating part of the story is, is that she had no cancer, but um, she 
uh, had um, because of the surgeries that she had for the ovarian cancer in the first place, um, did not have the abdominal um, wall um, intact. And so she was having a hard time um, from a core perspective for rock climbing. Mm -hmm. And she got a doc uh, that uh, was willing to um, work with her with the mesh screens that they use for hernias and cut a big square um, uh, patch of this kind of screen material, and they brought her muscles together in her abdomen and oh. used that, um, kind of sutured it in place. And it did fantastic in her own words for quite a while. She was able to climb better. Um, she was really happy about it. And very sadly, as a couple more years would go by, she started to develop infections in her abdomen, and they discovered that she was vascularized all through this mesh screen. What um, does that mean exactly? That new blood vessels were uh, forming right in the mesh screen itself, and yeah. they were uh, both bleeding and developing infections, and she would eventually develop uh, sepsis and lose her life because oh of it. Uh, in her own wishes, she wanted uh, to have an autopsy uh, done to see what hap had happened to her ovarian cancer. And she was free of disease. Uh, she had no evidence at all of stage four metastatic ovarian cancer. Uh, but as she said, she she lived quite profoundly for uh, many years and yeah. did do what she wanted to do and what she loved. That's amazing that you got her back to climbing. And even after neuropathy, that's got to give lots of people hope. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. great. So let me ask you another question to switch gears just a little bit here. Do you have any advice for people to address the fear of chemotherapy? So many people, like, I, I don't want to do chemotherapy. It's so bad. It's, it's, it's what killed my grandmother or, you know, whatever. They have this huge fear of it and can't get beyond it, even when they truly may need it. You know, I actually have... I mean, we, we could talk for hours about this subject. Uh, I, I have a lot of very strong opinions about this. Um, you know, these are medications, and they get a bad rap often enough because they're given in the wrong environment, meaning the patient isn't well and fit and prepared uh, for the drugs properly. Most adverse effects can be prevented by improving one's health and fitness uh, in the first place. Um, we routinely have patients exercise for um, four to five minutes minimum before we hang their bags. And that will cut acute toxicity by more than half. Just a simple bit of aerobics um, no right kidding. before they you know, get uh, started. I did not know um, that. I'll show uh, you know uh, in, in a few minutes if, if we have some time that um, the timing and the style of drug infusions can markedly decrease side effects, mm -hmm. um, and there's really solid data around this. Um, and uh, I'll come back to the this concept of chronotherapy or chronomodulation, mm -hmm. time sensitive drugs, um, and why this is so important. Um, and third, there are, there are many natural products that can both diminish toxicity, increase benefits 
um, boost uh, the effectiveness of drugs, but prevent the um, side effects and symptoms from occurring in the first place. And if you start to, you know, kind of approach this from the perspective that I like to, you know, pair patients um, often enough with each other, um, particularly a new patient coming in to talk to a patient who had received conventional drugs before us in a different setting and had terrible side effects. And here they're even further down the road where you would think they'd be more vulnerable to treatment and often on higher doses and even harsher drugs. And we have patients that will tell you that they actually can tolerate the drugs totally fine. Kind of what you said in the beginning, you know, that you just didn't experience the side effects in the same way that people that you know on the same drugs uh, did. And so, look, there's real data. I mean, no, I, I know that my colleagues often, you know, kind of poo-poo it and said, oh, there's no real research. There's lots of research with nausea, ginger, acupuncture, um, cannabinoids. Um, there, there's a whole variety of things, even a little bit of aerobic activity. There's meta-analyses. There's serious research and review articles and stuff that demonstrate that you can markedly reduce nausea. And in fact, really ginger capsules all on their own work as well as moderate uh, anti-nauseates and anti-emetic uh, medications. Fatigue, for sure, is well addressed with uh, both American and Korean uh, ginseng. Uh, there's uh, several randomized controlled trials, gold standard research that supports that. We mentioned neuropathy and neurotoxicity, the um, you know the tingling and numbness that can develop in your toes and fingers from some of these drugs. But there's a number of things that you can do besides uh, fitness and you know forms of massage and acupuncture which all have data behind them. There's randomized controlled trials with compounds like glutamine that can be used uh, to diminish uh, the neuropathy and even reverse the neuropathy um, as well. Um, aromatase inhibitors is drugs used uh, for breast cancer patients to uh, quiet down the uh, estrogen uh, drive, the, the, the promotional effect of estrogen. Um, Soy products, um, iso, soy isoflavones, um, uh, omega-3 uh, fish oils, um, uh, acupuncture can all help uh, reduce some of the joint pain and a lot of the hot flashes and symptoms that patients face. And these, there's meta-analyses for it. There's large trials that really support it. Um, as well as, you know, things like mucositis, um, uh, patients with uh, colorectal cancers that end up on uh, 5-FU uh, types of regimen or pancreatic cancer uh, patients, um, they often end up with mouth sores, um, which are quite preventable with a number of different uh, natural products, including glutamine. Uh, again, there's review articles, you know, on this. So it's not that there's not research on that side of the fence. On the second side of the fence, is coupling in a way to boost the effectiveness of treatment. So there's, you know, uh, a large number of patients that have what are called HER2 new positive uh, expression. So uh, you know about estrogen and uh, progesterone. HER2 new is a highly promotional target 
uh, for cancer and it uh, will drive uh, cancer. And we do have um, today seven drugs uh, to block HER2 to, to block this gene producing a protein that drives uh, growth of disease. Well, it turns out that something as simple as flax seeds, uh, two tablespoons a day in randomized controlled trial, blocked that protein production that drives growth of cancer, of breast cancer, by 71%. That's All amazing. six of the drugs before the seventh one came into the marketplace, which hasn't been tested yet, but the first, the six drugs in the marketplace blocked that same um, protein between 70 and 74%. So the 71% that flax seeds did was just as good as the conventional drug without the cardiac risk. Now, don't mm -hmm. misunderstand. I don't tell patients, forget the conventional you know, drugs. What right. I do is both until they've reached the ceiling of one to two years when you start to develop cardiomyopathy, when you start to develop heart problems, and we stop the drug at that point. But I'll keep patients on the flax seeds sometimes for the rest of their lives. Sure. Um, that can't hurt you, can it? I mean, there's not no at all. Harm. And there's all kinds of other benefits that you get from lignans and the type of fat that you find in the flaxseed and the fiber and what have you. And there's other, you know, things uh, in the same venue. Uh, platinums are a very typical drug that we find um, with a variety of different cancers from ovarian cancer to kidney cancers to lung cancers. In lung cancer research, they've shown uh, a Chinese uh, and European herb called astragalus. When combined in uh, 32 randomized controlled trials, over 2,800 patients, um, they were able to demonstrate that the use of astragalus with carboplatinum boosted the effectiveness of the chemotherapy markedly in a very serious way. So there, there is really a foundation of hard, meaningful data to support these things. You just got to be willing to, you know, kind of do the homework to look and search and find um, these various studies that are going on, uh, you know, in, in similar ways like that. I, I will, I'll use that as a jumping off point just to say that, so what happens when you get chemotherapy? And the first things that happen, and I spent a whole bunch of time after my training uh, for the first decade really looking at this because I was troubled by the fact that side effects would occur. And I believed at that time, I had a hunch that a particular side effect was associated with a particular nutrient becoming depleted because of a particular drug and developed the whole system that we would, with some research staff, eventually turn into a full system of care. So when you get chemotherapies almost across the board, you get some form of micronutrient depletion. You also build up toxic metabolites. The metabolites look like porcupine molecules under a microscope. They're referred to as circulating immune complexes. And as they accumulate, you get more inflammation, which drives growth and interferes with treatment. You develop more mutation and more side effects. Not surprising with the side effects, that can limit how much treatment you can go through. But also from a mutagenic perspective, if you start to damage the DNA, you get into deeper trouble. So if you didn't kill the cell with chemo, you made it more aggressive 
because of this kind of biology going on with the buildup of toxic metabolites. That will lead to resistance. So cancer cells very rapidly learn how to get around the drug and maintain their biology. And down the road, both from a progression perspective, but also delayed relapse, my grandmother recurred 25 years later because of cancer stem cells. And these stem cells can come back to haunt you in all kinds of ways. And we have, for all of these issues, specific agents to be able to go after, for instance, countering resistance, countering cancer stem cells, um, high-dose IV vitamin C, uh, intravenous curcumin, uh, metformin, uh, you know, even uh, some antibiotics like doxycycline can counter the cancer stem cell formation. But we also know that these couplers, these agents I was mentioning before, like astragalus, can be used, but also IVs can be used to boost the effectiveness of the chemotherapy and each of the different drugs. Inter interestingly, a major study was done in Europe during the pandemic with advanced breast cancer patients where IV curcumin was added to their chemotherapy to uh, the treatment group, and the control group got just chemotherapy by itself. And the treatment group did about twice as well as the conventional group. We're talking like five-year survivals, twice as many patients reaching that five-year mark. So really um, goosebump data. I mean, basketball-sized goosebumps in terms of how relevant uh, some of these treatments you know, can be. And simultaneously, we know, and this gets into more of my more recent work over the last uh, 25 years on the necessity for multi-targeting malignancy. And there, we know that these agents like intravenous curcumin and resveratrol and many others are pleiotropes. They uh, have the capacity genomically to multi-target the underlying biology of a disease. Hmm. And one of our problems has been is that we built a medical system for one bullet, one bullseye. It uh, worked yeah. from a research perspective because the FDA wants simple, clean studies. The scientific language is we want no confounding variables. We don't want muddy water. Uh -huh. And so we narrowed down our studies and made them simpler and cleaner and easier. And then we tell patients, we don't want you taking any of that stuff, those supplements or this or that. But the research doesn't show that they're bad if you know how to use them. What the research shows is they get in the way of making a claim. <laughs> you mm -hmm. can't make a claim and say, it was only my drug that worked. And right. so the institutional world moved in the direction um, understandably, of very simple studies. I just want the drugs given. I don't want you doing anything else. Well, at the same time, business also went in that direction. I understand that. Um, I want to study my drug. I don't want to study my drug, your drug, and both of our neighbor's drugs at the same time. It means we all have to dilute our profits. Mm -hmm. So in a very real way, we went narrow reductionistic from a research perspective, narrow reductionistic 
from a business perspective, while everything we would learn was complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity, that yeah. we needed to be able to dive deeper and understand not just the extracellular, not just the intracellular environment, but really understand many facets about what's going on with a patient, what's going on with their disease, to really buy them the best chances of success. And it so happens that natural products have the ability to multi-target. Yes, it needs to be selective and specific to that patient, and thus the need for very involved testing analysis, molecularly, metabolically, biochemically, to really understand what's going on. But if you do that, you can get a much better, you know, kind of uh, set of clinical results in our experience and uh, um, you know, yeah. put a whole and, career and, on that. So Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's wonderful. But if we keep talking, or rather, if you keep talking, then we're going to have to have a part two to the podcast. So, <laughs> okay. well, should I talk chronomodulation just for yes, a minute? Yes, I did want to ask you that. You mentioned it a while ago, and I want to make sure that we briefly have a chance for you to tell us what is chronomodulated chemotherapy? So um, chrono means time sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, every drug has a window on a 24-hour clock when it is what I call the happy hour. It's when the drug is the most effective and the least toxic. Um, if you give that drug exactly 12 hours earlier or later, the drug is the most toxic and least effective. Mm. It isn't just the time of the drug, though. It's also the style of the infusion. Most drugs are given as a big bolus push or a high concentration steady state drip. Either way, cancer cells aren't stupid. They mm. shut their pores, they congregate, and they go dormant. They go to sleep. They mm. say anything they can to avoid the chemical holocaust. Mm. What we do instead is we give a tiny, tiny trickle of drug. And what that does is agitates the cells and wakes more and more of them up. And they start with a little bit of drug, gobbling the drug up at 40 to 100 times the rate of a normal cell. One bite, 40 to 100. Second bite, 40 to 100. So you can actually see the uptake, uh, you know, in terms of the cells. We then ratchet up the concentration slowly peaking at the midpoint. And that sine wave curve is the infusion curve that we use special technology, special pumps to be able to deliver drugs. For those of you who aren't following me, think of dropping frogs in boiling water. Theoretically, they would jump out to save their skin. But if you start with room temperature and you slowly increase the heat, by the time they recognize they're being cooked, they already are. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So we can capture way more cells two, three, four, five times as many cells each time we treat by giving drugs this way. And we have an entire track record of patients with chronomodulated drugs where we gave the same drugs that they had received before in the same doses and completely reversed their diseases, even though it never worked or it stopped working. Um, and we have enough of those cases to really, you know, make a, a pretty strong argument. Now, there, there are two journals in Europe on the subject. Never took off in the U.S. in large part because it was VA hospital research. Everybody was, you know, funded by the federal government. Nobody thought they still needed to get 
FDA supervision to go to Medicare and insurance and say, you got to pay for this for extra. My wife and I were very idealistic and young. It was the 80s, and we um, uh, talked to, you know, my father and um, relatives about, you know, the logic of borrowing the kind of money that we needed to borrow to buy all the technology and get a staff fully trained. Um, we did it anyhow. My father thought we were numbskulls. Um, we <laughs> knew we weren't going to get paid anything extra for it. We've never billed a patient a dime extra for using the technology but the number of lives that we saved, we would both agree to do it again without even, you know, uh, a hesitation, you know, with it. Oh, so it's, that, it's really that's been... so incredible. So those are your paycheck moments, right? Those patients that you know survived, had a better outcome because of, of what you did. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> ah, that's great. All right. Well, I, again, we could go on and on. I know. I I know we could, but we'll have to stop it here. So um, for our listeners, if they want more wisdom from Keith Block or the Block Center, they can connect with you, I know, on blockmd.com. Are there um, other resources you would recommend to them or ways that they could connect? Yeah, you've probably the website's probably the, the fastest blockmd.com. We are in Skokie, Illinois, uh, right on I-94 right kitty corner to old orchard uh shopping center yep so. you're very easy to access and and it's great and i'll just mention too that um on your website there are some some great resources your blog your you know papers things you've written give people more information and um yeah the initial intake is with uh, Dr. Block himself and three other people, Dr. Well, the other Dr. Block, Dr. Penny Block. And um, it's it's a wonderful thing that if your insurance covers it, you should just go do it. But um, for anybody that wants to find out more about the Block Center, it's blockmd.com. Dr. Block, thank you so much. Again, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to do this with us. And it's great um, to be with you. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Remission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project, or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission healing factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission Health Coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission Workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease or perhaps even no evidence of disease, you can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Mans-Giroux, produced by Ryan Giroux. 
music by Batchbug. Follow the stories that heal wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>